Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Argentina had an election with a surprise outcome that is sending the assets tumbling. The peso currently the weakest on record versus the dollar. You have 100-year bonds also uh, absolutely falling out of bed. Joining us now, Damien Sassauer, Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Damien, how big of a potential negative is this for the Argentina economy and frankly, uh, for its access to international markets at this point? Well, I'll start with the latter there um, because that's an easy one. This is bad from an external perspective. I mean, if you're an <laughs> Thank investor, you for that technical view. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're a dollar investor and you're looking at the prints this morning, I mean, just about every um, dollar-denominated ADR that's attached to you know an Argentina asset, be it YPF or POMP or even the Global XMSCI ETF, which is the largest ETF that focuses on Argentine equities, they're all off 25% today, which is in line with uh, with the dollar RG cross rate, which is now uh, at 60, which is yes, uh, quite high and quite painful for. A lot of investors who have who have investments there. Just taking a step back, I mean, what happened overnight? We saw that the Argentine primaries um, basically handed a much bigger victory to Fernandez, who is um, who has Kirshner, the former uh, president, as his running mate. And um, you know, the market's perception of that is quite negative. You know, it's a return to currency and capital controls. I mean, Fernandez is already on the tape as saying he might not pay uh, interest on all the Lalique T-bills that offshore creditors now own. And so look, as the fifth largest issuer of, um, so- of US dollar-denominated sovereign debt, Argentina is a pretty big position in a lot of emerging market investor portfolios. And so there's some pain here, and I'm sure we're going to be seeing that before the end of Today. I wonder what the implication is for companies in Argentina that have borrowed debt externally because the depreciation in the peso is killer for them. No, right? it's, a, it's a great point. I mean, S&P actually just came out last week on the tape and said they don't see real refi pressure on those uh, issuers and, uh, of, of externally denomin- uh, you know, external debt. Okay, wait, just and, slow it down. So in other words, these companies that have borrowed money in dollars or euros, yes. they've pushed out the maturities so far that they won't have to necessarily refinance or pay it back anytime in the near future. So that relieves some of the pressure. Not the near future. 2021 was the year. So they bought themselves about a year and a half to two years let's call it, according to S&P's calculations. So it's still pretty close. In the next week. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. So it's not that far out is the point. And, you know, look, I mean, you've got a current account deficit that's narrowed, albeit on the back of RG peso weakness. So it's 4.6% of GDP. This is an economy now in the longest recession in at least 15 years. We're hoping to get a positive print for the second quarter. We very well may get that. But I mean, my goodness, in the first quarter, GDP was off 5.8% year over year. And consensus is calling for negative 1.4% for this full year. So things are bad on the ground in Argentina. And look, I mean, despite the fact that they had an absolutely wonderful harvest, certainly relative to last year, just for full disclosure, Argentina is a very big exporter of soybeans and agricultural products globally. And so one would have thought that that might have been a bullish uh, uh, you know, would have been good for the economy, but my goodness, things are really, really, really bad today. And um, you know, if this um, if this is any indication of how the elections go on the twenty seventh of October, um, yeah, return to the Peronist Kirshner ways would not be good from the perspective of an offshore investor. So, uh, aside from Argentina, which has defaulted on its debt what five times in the past hundred years, is that <laughs> serial correct? defaulter. Is what we yeah, like. serial defaulter. Yet they still were able to borrow money for a hundred years, and the people who bought that debt really regretting it today with those prices on those. <laughs> Bonds. In free fall, uh, aside from Argentina, 
How idiosyncratic, and I know Jonathan Farrow hates this word, but how specific to Argentina are these issues versus endemic within the emerging market space? Yeah, no. So, I mean, I think, you, you know, I mean, to that point, we have to take a step back because it's all about U.S.-China. And, you know, if you just look at some of the data that came out of China overnight, I mean, they released their total social financing data, which is all that credit extension that they kind of inject into their economy. And it was bad. I mean, given the pace. The word of the day, by the way. Is David, bad. Bad. <laughs> it was bad. I mean, we basically were expecting something on the order of $1.6 of credit being extended extended, I'm talking in yuan terms, into the local uh, China economy, it was only 1 trillion yuan, which is way less than expected, and certainly less than the 2.3 trillion we saw in June. And really what this is, is new loans are down, tighter property market financing. You know, as we know in China, the real estate market's a very big portion of that economy. And with credit growth weak, especially in light of US US China trade friction escalating, it's just not going to, it just means that things are going to get much worse. Oh, and by the way, the protests in Hong Kong and we see IP and retail sales coming on Wednesday, which is also expected to be weak. Yeah. It's just not going to be a good week for emerging markets. So Damien, here's a weird thing. All this sounds so bad. I'm looking at the uh, MSCI emerging markets, uh, FX index. It's the lowest levels of the year. All really bad. I'm looking at emerging markets funds not doing badly. They're not seeing big withdrawals and emerging markets debt is actually outperforming U.S. credits. So what gives? Okay, so well, you know, EM dollar debt tends to be driven by uh, the U.S. Treasury market effectively and spreads within the U.S. Treasury market, all of which yields have been coming down. Spreads have are still tighter on the year, or maybe they're about break even. But all of that has been fueling the roughly double digit gains we've seen in EM dollar debt. No, oh, hey, by the way, you make a really good point because I just looked at the constituent breakdown in EMB, which is the largest um, um, emerging market dollar bond ETF. It's the largest EM ETF you know, in existence. And Argentina is really only a small portion of that, despite the fact that it's five, 5.5% of most benchmark indices, it's only 2% of that ETF. So, you know, by hook or by crook, you know, maybe that's got a little bit of a positive overlay too. But yeah, no, EM dollar debt's done well. We'll continue to do well so long as US uh, treasury yields are declining and spreads remain benign, if that's, if that's true. So yeah, that's kind of what we're looking at. I mean, you know, I mean, look, Mexico, Russia, Brazil, it's all been doing pretty well. Yeah, the emerging market conundrum, lots of bad news you can hook into, and yet, and yet, the Fed keeps cutting rates, and that's typically a technical positive. Damien Sassauer, Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Behind the wall of worry that we have today in markets is what is happening between the U.S. and China, and just uh, not only what is happening between them when it comes to trade, but what is happening in each of the economies when it comes to growth. We are so lucky to have Leland Miller here with us, who tracks all of the economic data coming out of China. He's a chief executive officer of China Beige Book International, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Leland, it really struck me uh, that there was data showing slowing credit growth. Uh, for the month of June overnight. This was interesting because it doesn't necessarily stem from a crackdown on leverage ratios. Does this indicate a slowdown in growth to you? Not yet. So there's a lot to be figured out over the next several weeks. The the first thing to know is that the first quarter, our first month out of every quarter, we typically see less lending. So you get the narrative, things are slowing down. The end of the quarter, they pump more stuff in. So we'll have to see this over the course of several months. Uh, But the second thing is you've got these new tariffs hanging uh, hanging over the Chinese economy, but you've also got 
the, the, the party's 70th anniversary and uh, the PRC's 70th anniversary in October. So the Chinese are going to want to boost the economy for that. So a lot of this is timing. When are they going to start pumping things in? When do they want to improve uh, the optics around the economy? So I, I think it's too early to say that things are slowing down quite yet. Okay. So right now, where are we when it comes to the trade war and the ammunition that both sides have to deploy? Well, this, this was really interesting what happened in August because you know, as we've said for a long time, when you leave Osaka and you basically say we are, have a deadline at the end of the year, so six months, end of the year, you don't even announce it, but you imply that you're not doing anything until the end of the year. It's very hard to get the parties focused on doing anything substantive. The Chinese don't want to talk about the text. They, they want to talk about how to get to November when they can restart discussions. So all the discussion lately had been over Huawei on the U.S. side and agricultural buys on the Chinese side. And the Chinese got through the, the last meeting and thought they had done, promised just enough to get what they wanted and have sort of a smooth fall. And the president didn't like that and he, he ratcheted up tensions and then the Chinese did what they did with the Yuan, which was overdue but seen as a poke in the eye. And now we're at this position where we could see uh, anything. We could see this coming week, we could see tensions relaxed because of the Huawei general license is extended or some sort of concessions are done on Huawei. Or we could see the exact opposite. The president does nothing on Huawei. You see tariffs go up a, um, to 10% or even 25% on September 1st. And this thing's uh, you know breaking down quite quickly. What about on the Chinese side, aside from the yuan peg, and it's not necessarily a depreciation as much as allowing the currency to weaken perhaps to its market, uh, its actual market weight. Aside from that, are you expecting China to go after U.S. companies that are doing business in China? Not yet. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're not being uh, messed with on the margins. But right now, I think that China's goal is to just stop the nightmare scenario from occurring. So they don't want tariffs on all their goods. They don't want Trump to come even harder at Huawei and the other tech companies, some of whom are on lists that have not been announced yet and would be if things really broke down. Uh, she is obviously very happy that President Trump hasn't said much about Hong Kong. If, to the extent he said anything, it's almost been encouraging. You've got South China Sea, you've got Taiwan arms sales. So things aren't good right now, but the Chinese are very motivated not to let them fall apart. Meanwhile, I was reading an article over the weekend that I thought was really interesting about Xi Jinping's challenge right now, and that he faces this really difficult move in trying to take this very quickly growing economy and shift it to a more middle class, lower growth, but more stable developed market of sorts. And I'm wondering where it is on that progression. How far along has it gotten and, and sort of whether you view this as sort of the albatross that Xi Jinping needs to cross? Well, he has a lot of he has a, he has a lot of challenges coming up. I'm not which, sure which, which one I would which pick. Which one are you going to pick? Uh, you know, the, the I think that if you if we take it back up to thirty thousand feet, what what we're seeing since 2016 was a lot of progress on certain things. Like they cracked down on shadow finance. They didn't do as much on leveraging as they claim, but they did a little bit. There was some restructuring about to go on, and then they saw the Trump trade war hit in 2018, and everything they started they began to reverse, and now it's totally reversed. So. This hasn't hit official data yet, so it's not believed by a lot of people. But we saw a major resurgence in shadow banking in the second quarter. So it's back. You know, they said that they were going to deal with it. No, they got scared about what's happening in the trade war, and they brought shadow banking back. You're not seeing restructuring. You're not seeing reform. We're not seeing evidence of rebalancing in our numbers. And so I think what the Chinese have done once again is revert to the short term to deal with their 
short-term problems and said, you know, we're going to kick the can down the road, as everyone seems to do these days, and, and deal with the problems next year or the year after that. So what's the consequence of that? Well, what it means is they can, they can defy expectations of a more dramatic slowdown in the short term by, by using their various levers to boost growth. But it means the, the medium term and the long term are going to be much more difficult. The Chinese have an advantage in that they have a non-commercial financial system. It's one of the reasons things haven't fallen apart the way they did in the U.S. with Lehman and, and, and in Europe as well. The Chinese can just swish huge amounts of capital from one side of the system to the other, plugging holes, fixing problems. But that means they're essentially chasing good money after bad, and it's going to hit it's going to stagnate the economy over time. It's going to it's going to hit their return on investment because they're constantly pumping new money into bad projects. So it'll have a long-term hit and, and a long-term slowdown is basically in the cards. So just to sort of re- put a bow on all of this, this is a really important point. If China has demonstrated it is willing to sacrifice the longer term for the short-term boost that it can get by reversing some of the deleveraging, et cetera, measures from earlier, then how is the trade war pressuring them? Because they're showing that they are willing to use this ammunition now, regardless of the longer term consequences. I think that's the problem if you're in the White House. The Chinese have the ability because they don't have to worry about the politics the way that a democracy would. And they don't have to worry about uh, a Congress that doesn't like certain things. They are just going to fix problems that clear the way for the party in the short term. That's what they've always done. And that's what they'll continue to do. And so the difficulty in causing problems for China is that they always have a quicker response mechanism and a more effective one because they don't have to answer to anyone. Real quick here, what year will the slowdown in China be felt, the slowdown that will necessarily come despite the stimulus that the PBOC is willing to, to put in? Look, I, I would think that within five years, you're going to start seeing much slower growth. The question is, are the Chinese going to admit it? I mean, if you, you're already seeing slower growth than people were predicting a few years ago. It just hasn't been enough to, to really shake the, shake markets. I think over the next five years, you're going to start seeing a more precipitous decline uh, that they're not going to be able to do much about. Leland Miller. So wonderful to get your perspective, as always. Thank you for being here. Uh, And honestly, Leland, you guys have data that is really spectacular because it shows what's actually going on. And there's so much question around the credibility of the official data to get uh, other measures to get a sense of what's going on on the ground is really important. Leland Miller is chief executive officer of China Beige Book International, uh, weighing in on both sides here. Jeffrey Epstein, the financier who was accused of sex trafficking, was found dead in his jail cell over the weekend. Now, there are many questions around the circumstances of his death. It has been established as a suicide. Questions, though, about how he was surveilled by the jail staff. Joining us now is Chris Dolmesh. He's a Bloomberg legal reporter joining us from the courthouse. Chris, uh, we're now getting word from Attorney General Bill Barr that there were some serious irregularities with the manner in which Jeffrey Epstein was held. Can you elaborate? Do we know anything more? Uh, no, that's just recently come out. He's he said, you know, there are serious irregularities over the weekend. He is vowed to investigate, get to the bottom of what happened. Um, you know, it's a pretty secure facility, and a lot of people are asking questions as to what how this could happen um, in a federal prison that's held, you know, uh, El Chapo for for example. So uh, what is the concern here? Because uh, if I understand correctly, it has been established as a suicide, even though there have been a number of conspiracy theories that it was murder. I mean, has it been established as suicide? 
So, um, you know, the only thing we've been told um, by the Bureau of Prisons is that he was found unresponsive. Jail staff tried to revive him, summoned emergency medical personnel, and that he was pronounced dead um, at the hospital. Um, ABC and others, you know, reported that, he, that he, he hung himself. And there has been an autopsy performed. The medical examiner verified that, but hasn't officially determined the cause of death. Um, there has been a city official that told the New York Times that um, that the medical examiner is pretty confident that it is suicide, um, but needs you know to complete the autopsy to make that determination. So, what's the key question here when it comes to the serious irregularities that Attorney General Barr was talking about? Well, there's you know there's questions about um, you know staff overtime, whether staff were overworked. Um, you know, what the conditions at the prison were like, um, whether or not he was on a suicide watch. We've been told that he was not, even though he was recently on one after previous attempts, apparently, to kill himself. Um, so some of the, you know, the, the investigation is going to revolve around that, who was watching him, um, when they were supposed to um, be checking on him, uh, what was in his cell, how he was able to get something that allowed him to hang himself. Um, it's going to be a pretty comprehensive investigation, and that's kind of launched every time there is a, um, a suicide in, in a federal prison. Chris, I'm wondering what his death means for the uh, prosecution and for the investigation into the nature of some of the crimes, which included uh, trafficking young girls who were under the legal age of consent. Sure. So this ends the criminal prosecution because he's dead. Uh, The case just ends. And that kind of ends the attempts by prosecutors to kind of seize his assets um, to compensate his victims through criminal proceedings. But that doesn't mean that they can't go um, in civil proceedings to seize individual assets, including his mansion, um, his plane, other things to attempt to compensate victims. Obviously, there's going to be a pretty complicated um, state scenario that comes out after his autopsy is finished. And, um, you know, we, we don't know whether he has a will. You know, we, we would assume with somebody with his number of assets would have a will. Um, so it's a question of who would the executor would be, where it might be filed. I mean, he has homes in New York, in the Virgin Islands, in New Mexico. Uh, so any of those places are a potential for him to have his will filed and have his estate divvied up there, though. Right. Certainly states and, you know, will want to get a piece of the tax bill. So there's a question about the assets. There's also a question about the tentacles of this case that had ensnared, at least uh, in the court documents, very high profile individuals who are friends with him from uh, the political to the legal uh, to the business world. What is going on with that? I mean, are those kinds of uh, reaches of the investigation going to be shot at this point or are they going to be ongoing? No, so other prosecutors have told me that the, the prosecutors here in Manhattan will almost certainly continue their investigation with the evidence they've gathered. Obviously, there's a conspiracy count here, which implicates other people, um, and there should certainly could be other charges brought against um, other members of that conspiracy. Um, we wouldn't doubt that they were that they're indeed doing that right now. So this could definitely ensnare other people. Um, as it moves forward, um, which will probably take a little while as they go through the evidence. So is there any concern, Chris, about finding all of Jeffrey Epstein's assets, considering the rather secretive nature in which they were all kept? 
I'd say there's definitely a concern through that. I mean, even the prosecutors have been unable to determine exactly where all his assets are and um, says they've been secured away in trusts and, you know, that there's several layers of secrecy that uh, have to be gone through before we can, they can determine exactly what he has. Chris Dolmetsch, thank you so much for being with us. He's a Bloomberg legal reporter joining us from the courthouse, the latest being Attorney General William Barr coming out and saying uh, that the prison where Jeffrey Epstein died has, quote, serious irregularities. He vowed to pursue justice for the financier's victims. As Chris was talking about, there is some question about seizing the assets of Jeffrey Epstein and doling out the proceeds to the victims, as might have happened under a successful prosecution. But now that he's dead, Uh, raises some questions about whether they can do that. Time to get a check on what's going on with the price of oil, where it's headed, and what it means for Saudi Arabia in particular. Joining us now, Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. Uh, Ellen, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with Saudi Aramco, which reported its earnings, and uh, there were a couple of surprises there. Yes, they did. Uh, they indicated a 12% drop in revenues because of the de- decline in oil prices. But was that what really caught your eye? Uh, no, I think that the drop in revenue and, and in profit was expected uh, and is really not that bad considering that oil prices have been lower and also that Aramco is producing less oil as a result of its agreements with OPEC. But what's really interesting in uh, the numbers that the company did release are the dividends that it's giving to the Saudi government. So even though revenue and, and uh, net profit is down, the dividends are really up. Uh, and Aramco seems to divide this into two different kinds, ordinary dividends and special dividends. And ordinary dividends were about the same, but special dividends grew by $14 billion. And uh, this is really an area that investors need to keep an eye on, particularly if they're interested in uh, an Aramco IPO, which is still uh, forthcoming. But uh, it could be an area of concern. So just to sort of uh, flesh that out a little bit, because I thought this was really interesting, and, and you pointed it out in a note where you were talking about how people are concerned there is discretion at Saudi Aramco about how much of their profits they give to the Saudi Arabian government. And this becomes a problem for people who might want to invest in the equity of this company because they don't know how much they will be left with. What does it indicate to you that that special dividend increased at a time of declining profits and revenue? Uh, What does it indicate about Saudi Aramco and the message they're sending to shareholders or potential shareholders? To me, it indicates that the government is still, the Saudi government says it wants to wean itself off of oil revenue, off, off of its dependency on oil. And that's uh, a very a very good goal for them to have, but it's still not there. And in fact, it's actually needing more and more. Uh, they've, they've really solidified their relationship in terms of uh, income taxes and exactly how much they're going to be reimbursing Aramco for the cost of fuel, but they still have to really flesh out this dividend relationship because it does mean that in the end, despite all of the safeguards and the procedures that they've put in, put in place, it does mean that in the end, the government is still is still really holding the purse strings for Ramco, and if it needs more money for whatever it is that it's doing that year, it's going to take it in a dividend. 
So uh, the other interesting aspect of the Saudi Aramco earnings was their announcement that they're planning to buy a stake in the refining and chemicals business of India's Reliance Industries, which is uh, a chemicals business. It's not an oil and gas business. And this is, I, I assume, a way for them to continue to diversify away from, uh, away from crude, correct? Yes, it's definitely part of their long-running strategy to increase their downstream capabilities, to diversify away from just uh, upstream and, and crude production. But there is there is something very interesting here, which is that when Aramco goes into a foreign market, particularly an Asian market, uh, China and South Korea are really good examples of this, uh, but India, I think, is going to be one. It not it, it doesn't just invest in a chemicals or a refinery business, but it also secures an outlet for its own crude. And uh, what was kind of hidden in this deal, which, by the way, is still in its very early stages, is the fact that Reliance agrees that it's going to double its crude imports from Aramco to bring that up to, I think, 500,000 barrels per day. So Aramco is not just investing in a company uh, that it thinks will do well. It's also securing an outlet for its crude. I want to broaden out just a little bit. Uh, the price of oil has been whipped around in part uh, due to Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia's attempts to do whatever it can to support prices, or at least that's what they were uh, they were making noise about. What can Saudi Arabia do at this point further, and what are they likely to do to keep prices uh, from going down further? You know, this is the big question that's on everyone who follows the oil market's mind because prices have really seemed to be disconnected from supply and demand, or particularly from supply, uh, and there's really this focus on uh, the future of demand. So there's focus on, on what demand could be in the future based on uh, forecasts about the economy. And so Saudi Arabia is looking at this and they're saying, the price of oil is going down, 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 and, and going all over the place, but there's no indication from a supply perspective or even really from a current demand perspective that this should be happening. So they admit this, and then they say, well, we're going to do what we can. They had planned to increase production in September. They've decided they're not going to. They're going to hold off on that production increase. And uh, But really, what more can they do? It's a big question. Some people are saying, well, OPEC as a whole could cut production by a million barrels a day, and that might lift prices a bit. But when prices are so disconnected from supply, it's really unclear that there's anything they can do short of just riding it out. Dr. Ellen Wald, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Dr. Ellen Wald is a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. She's president of Transversal Consulting. You can read her columns on the Bloomberg at opingo or bloomberg.com slash opinion on uh, the internets, if you will. Uh, the really interesting perspective. She's also, uh, by the way, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.